God, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that we have the privilege of gathering together and not only worshiping you as we raise our voices to declare the truth of who you are, but uh, we get to worship you by giving honor to your word. And so we pray that as we transition our worship now, that it would be uh, just a time of, of blessing to you. I do pray that you would speak to us through it. We thank you that, uh, that you have such a heart to, to reveal yourself to us. And we pray that you would give us open ears and open minds and, and clear thoughts to really understand what you're trying to say. So have your way with us, God, and uh, all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have a Bible and you want to go ahead and flip open to the book of Esther, we are going through the Bible in overview fashion, one book a week, uh, give or take, this year. Um, so we find ourselves in the book of Esther tonight. Uh, after tonight, the way the Old Testament's broken down, you have the law, which is the first five books of the Bible. Then you have what's considered the histories, which is really the history of the nation of Israel um, up until really the end of the period that we know as the Old Testament. And then you go into the poetry or the wisdom literature, which is where we'll start next week. And after that, you go into the prophets. And so as of tonight, we are done with the histories. We've made it through basically the entire history of Israel. Um, last night, last week, we made it through the chronological history. Tonight, we go back just a little bit, but Esther's still a historical book. So Esther, um, we don't know who it's written by. Uh, the title's off of the main character. A lot of people speculate that it might have been written by Mordecai, which is as good a guess as any. So we can just say, sure, it might have been written by Mordecai. Um, Esther, if you remember, the nation of Judah, Israel, uh, okay, nation of Israel came into the promised land. And then after the reign of Saul and David and Solomon, the kingdom split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom uh, never had a godly leader after that time, and they were carried off captive by the Assyrian Empire. The nation of Judah uh, was a little bit hit or miss in the leadership department, and they were eventually carried off captive by the Babylonian Empire, and the Lord promised that they'd return after 70 years. Well, because of the way the Babylon carried out their conquest of Judah, the Lord allowed Babylon to be conquered because uh, Babylon had overdone what the Lord had wanted them to do. And so as a result, the nation of Babylon gets conquered by the nation of Persia. And so under the reign of the Persians is when the Jews are allowed to go back. But Esther um, basically gives us a, sort of a, a different perspective on what life might have been like because a lot of the Jews did go back. But after 70 years in captivity, most of them, at that point, had no recollection of, of Jerusalem, right? I mean, if all of us right now were supposed to go somewhere, and only those of us over the age of 70 could remember it, then truthfully, not very many of us would remember what it's like. And so a lot of Jews stayed behind. And uh, different reasons, you know, for some of them it would have been safety in the travel, for some of them it would have really truly been spiritual laziness, for some of them it might have been um, that that's where the Lord had them. And Esther, I think, falls sort of in that last category. Um, as a book, Esther's really interesting in the Old Testament, in the, in the Bible, actually, because it's the only book of the Bible that never mentions the Lord directly. It never says the Lord, it never says God, it never says Yahweh, it never says, it never gives us any actual name of God. But it's not to say that God is not present in the book of Esther. Uh, He's, it's, Esther is a beautiful book of watching God work behind the scenes. And almost to emphasize that point, it's like they, 
leave out his name directly so that you can watch it all happen behind the scenes. So that's sort of the big picture overview of the book. Uh, if you want a nice outline, I was listening to a pastor this week teach on Esther. He said, Esther's got a really great outline. Chapter one through chapter 10. It's a, it's a history. So it just runs in a straight line and that's, that's the simplest way to look at it. Um, so that's what we're gonna do tonight. We're just gonna go through it, chapter one through 10. Um, chapter one opens up, and remember we're in the time at this point of the Persian Empire. Uh, Persia, well, we'll just, we'll start reading. Chapter one, verse one. Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, that's the capital of Persia, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his province being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. So we're introduced to a Persian king, Ahasuerus, or Hazarus, or however you want to pronounce it, whatever. Um, and he's king of land that stretches from Ethiopia to India, which is a pretty sizable stretch of real estate. Um, and he, in his third year of his reign, he brings in all the governors of these regions to the capital city, and he spends 180 days showing them his stuff, which would imply that he had quite a bit of stuff. Um, if you can like, just picture showing somebody everything you own, I think probably all of us could do it in less than six months. Um, but it took him six months to show them everything he had. And so after six months of partying and showing them everything he had, what's the most natural thing to do with a group of guys? Well, let's throw a party. So they have a party, it goes for seven days. Um, and then basically on the seventh day, he's been drinking uh, a lot too much. And the king says, I've got this great idea. My wife is so beautiful. Let's bring her out here and all you guys can, will compare notes on how beautiful my wife is. And you can all agree with me that my wife is the most beautiful woman in the kingdom. Um, which is, you know, there's a lot of things you could say, but not the least of which is, don't ever make decisions after you've been drinking for seven days. That's just, don't, don't. don't. There's nothing, nothing good, right? The Bible is very clear. Um, there's not a direct prohibition against drinking alcohol in the scriptures. Uh, there, you could look at it and say there might be one directly for pastors, but there's not really a direct verse that says a person cannot drink. The Bible's very clear that it is a sin to be drunk. And, you know, truthfully, alcohol is a depressant. It will depress your function, and it will reduce your ability to process well, and it's going to always make you a lesser version of yourself. Uh, there's, a, there's a pastor I know who does a lot of a lot of work with recovering alcoholics and addicts. And he says, you know, nobody ever wakes up from a hangover and realizes that they were just some amazingly charitable human being while they were drunk. Nobody ever wakes up and says, I was that generous? Wow, no, uh, you wake up and, and realize your stupidity. So here we got a king being stupid. Uh, he wants to parade his wife in front of a group of drunken men. And different people argue about exactly how uh, sensual or immoral that was supposed to be really doesn't matter. The point is, it's a stupid idea no matter how you slice it. Um, and so the queen, wisely but to her own danger, says, no, I won't come. And the king, you know, once again, he's got to make a decision on the fly while he's drunk. He says, well, what do we got to do? And all his, because he's never, you know, he's, he's probably never been told no in his life before at this point. He's the king over the largest empire in the world. He has 
six months worth of stuff to show off. He owns the land from India to Ethiopia. Who's gonna tell this guy no? Right? His wife just told him no. And so he says, what do we do? And his advisors say, we've got to do something because if this gets out, we're gonna have a women's liberation movement on our hands and we do not want this to happen. You have got to squash this right now. So the queen Vashti gets, uh, she gets docked from her position and basically the king writes a law, says she is not queen anymore. Period. And so, okay, that's, that's how you take care of your wife being honorable. Um, that's his approach anyways. That's really chapter one, right? What do we do? We, we've got a situation on our hands brought on by my own stupidity. What do we do? I know. Let's create another stupid decision. And it's a great intro because it does give us a little bit of insight into exactly how this king processes stuff, right? There's nowhere in here where it says he... Ask counsel of the Lord. There's nowhere in here where it says he sobered up. You know, he gave it, he slept on it. No, no. He got smashed for seven days straight and then decided to make a judgment about the, his future with his wife. And so he winds up getting divorced. And then chapter two, um, basically, in a nutshell, he gets bored. And so, you know, what do you, okay, I kind of miss my wife now, but we made a law and you can't go back on the law. So what are you going to do? Well, chapter 2, verse 2, Then the king's attendants who served him said, beautiful, said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to him. And then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the king said, Well, I guess... And no, no, the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So the king says, we get, we're bored, and they say, I've got an idea. We'll have a beauty contest. We'll get every attractive single woman from India to Ethiopia, and we'll bring them all here, and you can pick the one you like the best. Now, I haven't counted, but I am sure there's quite a few attractive single females between India and Ethiopia. And so the king says, this is a great idea. And uh, so basically, they start rounding up these women. And now we get introduced to the main character of the story, Who's Esther? And so there's a Jew uh, named Mordecai who's raising either his cousin or his niece, depending on how you read it. Um, the Hebrew isn't like super specific. And he's raising this girl. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, and her Persian name is Esther. Um, and so we're just getting this quick little intro, and she gets uh, taken into the king's palace, and she's with all these other gals. Now, where it's, where it's going from here is um, <clears throat> they're each given 12 months of preparation. They get, what does it say? They get six months basically soaking in oil and six months soaking up spices and cosmetics. And then they go into the king. And if the king likes you, you're in. If the king doesn't like you, you're not in. Don't think of this as like a romantic concept. Okay, this is not, Esther's story is not a romance story. All right, don't, and sometimes it can be tempting to sort of like, oh, you know, the beautiful girl, the rich king, you know, this is, this is great. No, this is not great. This is a guy who just basically kidnapped thousands of women from across the country. Um, he's making all his decisions either through his hormones or through his drunken state. And basically what we're going to do now is have a beauty pageant and each girl will get to spend one night with the king. And if the king likes you, you can be the queen. If the king doesn't like you, well, guess what? 
you spend a night with a king, that means you're basically royal property at this point. So if you love the guy back home, that's too bad for you. You're part of the harem until you die. Right? You can never marry. You can, if the king never calls for you again, you will never marry someone else. You will never have children. You will basically live a life of rich isolation until you die. So this is not like some sweet, you know, heartwarming story. Um, this is really a pretty perverted scene, truthfully. But what do we say at the beginning? Right? God's name isn't mentioned directly, but we're going to watch God working behind the scenes this whole thing. And, and oftentimes... When we're watching God work behind the scenes, sometimes we just get to watch it as almost a game of odds. Like, what are the odds? Right? What are the odds? Well, what are the, what are the odds that the universe could spring into existence from non-material matter into material? What are the odds that, you know, the energy could just sort of exist? Because uh, we know it can't be created or destroyed, but somehow at one point in time, uh, if evolution is true, it must have been. No, 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 no. What are the odds? Well, the odds are, oh, maybe the most rational explanation is God was working to bring things into order. So here, you've got this beauty contest with thousands of, uh, presumably thousands of, of women. And there's this, we're told, hey, there's this one girl, right? There's this one orphan girl. Uh, oh, by the way, she happens to be Jewish. But, uh, but anyways, there's this one orphan girl. Oh, by the way, happens to be very attractive. Oh, by the way, there's this one orphan girl. Happens to have some wisdom when she gets basically her shot with the king. Uh, instead of saying, here's what I want to do, she asks the guy who's in charge of all the gals, what do you think, like, what's, what's a good thing to, you know, what's the best way to approach this? And so, um, so it says here that Esther found favor with the king. And the king marries her. The king falls in love with her. And what we're seeing is these little ripples and these undercurrents of the Lord starting to organize something, something starting to happen. And on the surface, it's not a great thing. Right? On the surface, Esther just married a pagan man. You have a Jewish person marrying a pagan man. So she just broke the law. Right? It's one of these, well, she kind of, you know, it wasn't really her choice, but she just broke the Jewish law, which would mean really she'll never have a chance to go see the temple. She'll never have a chance to have any of her children ever serve the Lord according to the Jewish law. She's really just like, for all practical purposes as a Jewish person, her spiritual value is over. Um, it, it's really, it's finished off. And so... You know, I mean, I'm sure there's perks to being married to the king. But this isn't, like, an exciting thing for her. But we're going to watch some undercurrents. And the story's going to drop us some undercurrents. So in verse 21 of chapter 2, we get this little undercurrent. In those days, while Mordecai's sitting at the king's gate, these two king's officials from those who guarded the door became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name, now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written on the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. So just a little P.S. here in chapter 2. Uh, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, he's got this job working in the palace or whatever, and he overhears a plot to murder the king, and he's able to pass the word to Esther, and these guys are they're busted and they're executed. So Mordecai saves the king's life, and it's recorded. And the narrative moves right on to the next thing. It's just dropping that for just a second. So we're supposed to hang on to that thought. Chapter 3, we get introduced to the bad guy. Right? This Esther reads like a great novel. You've got the dumb guy, you've got the beautiful girl, you've got the bad guy. It's all building together beautifully. And so the bad guy is Haman. Yeah. Haman, um, interestingly, it tells us that Haman is an Agagite. And you say, what does that even mean? Well, here's what it means. 
in 1 Samuel, the Lord told King Saul, you go destroy all the Amalekites. And Saul destroyed most of the Amalekites. And he left alive King Agag. And somehow or another, it doesn't give us the exact history, but somehow or another, a descendant of Agag's survived. And one of Agag's great descendants is this guy named Haman. And it's a subtle little detail in the scriptures, but it's a great reminder that when we leave the work of God unfinished, when we leave a certain amount of sin or a certain amount of compromise or an unwillingness to really do what the word of God is telling us to do, it always carries long-term consequences, much greater than we can ever really even imagine. Saul, when he's deciding to partially obey the Lord, has no idea that he's going to wind up, by his disobedience, allowing this guy Haman to enter the world as one of the greatest threats to the Jewish people. So Haman, uh, he's, a, he's a ruler in the kingdom, high-ranking dude, gets promoted by the king. People are supposed to bow down to him. Mordecai won't bow down to him. And we're not told why for sure, uh, but Mordecai just had this thing. He said, I'm not going to bow to Haman. And Haman, um, he gets consumed by this, right? He cannot let it go. He will not let it go. And like and like. Anybody who allows bitterness to take hold in their lives, he's not content to just say, well, let's make this fair. He wants to get revenge. And so who's Mordecai? Oh, Mordecai is a Jew. I've got an idea. Let's destroy, not Mordecai, let's destroy the entire Jewish race. That's Haman's solution to one man slighting him in his perspective, right? This thing grows in Haman's mind. Haman feeds on this, this bitterness until all of a sudden now he is willing to destroy a race of people simply to satisfy his own ego. And so he goes to the king. He says, King, um, I've got this, there's this group of people who are really just a hassle in the kingdom. Let's, if you don't mind, just give me permission. I'll just wipe them all out and then I'll collect their funds and deposit it in your treasury. And the king, once again, we're getting an insight to his character, says, great idea. I love the way you think, Haman. Go for it. And so, and incidentally, um, between chapters 1 and chapter 2, historically, the king had lost a major battle. Uh, it's called the Battle of Thermopylae, if you've ever seen or heard of the movie 300, or the story of the 300 Spartans. That battle happens between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Esther. And basically, the king lost a huge percent of his army, which consequently means he lost a lot of money, which means he's kind of scrambling for how do we build up the army, and, and he's got a lot of moving political things going on, so he needs some money. He's a little strapped for cash. And so what do we do when we strap for cash? Well, let's wipe out a people group. That makes a lot of sense from the king's perspective. And so Haman gets permission. Haman gets legally sanctioned uh, authority to wipe out the Jewish people. And in chapter 4, Mordecai learns about this. Esther learns about this. And we see their response is prayer. And it's such a great response. Mordecai's response is he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He wailed loudly and bitterly, and it says there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many are laying on sackcloth and ashes. And Mordecai comes to Esther. He says, you've got to do something. You're the queen. And Esther says, um, kind of, right? Because being the queen, you know, we live, in, uh, we live in the modern age where, you know, we have the president and the first lady, and there's perks, and there's, there's a lot of things that presumably go along with that. Well, when you're the queen in Persia, you're still not the king. Basically, it's not the king and then the queen and then everybody else. It's the king and then the rest of the world, as far as he's concerned. And the king had a system whereby if you came into his presence and he hadn't invited you, he'd look at you and decide how he was feeling that day. 
And if he held out the golden stick, you could come closer. And if he didn't, they would just take you out and chop off your head. And so Esther says, um, yeah, I can't quite just like go to the king. And it's not like we're going out for coffee this week. Um, she says, actually, uh, he hasn't called me in 30 days, which would imply there's at least a little bit of marital stress or something going on there, right? Um, no, I haven't, like, I haven't been summoned to come to the king in a month. And so if I just waltz in on the king, there's a solid chance that I'm just going to lose my head, right? And this king is, we're seeing, pretty uh, whim-oriented. And so if, if, you know, if he's just not feeling it, whatever, uh, no, she, she's dead. And Mordecai, he says, he sends the messengers to Esther, and he says this in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Mordecai's got an understanding that God is not going to fail in his work. Mordecai understands, you know what, the Jews will be delivered one way or another, but this is your opportunity. This is the moment that God is giving you to do something. And he says in verse, right after that, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. It's probably the most famous verse in the book of Esther, right? For such a time as this. Why are we put on the earth? Well, we're put on the earth for such a time as this. We are put on the earth for this time in this place. Did you ever wonder, does it ever bother you a little, just a little bit, like why you're here? Like why, why exactly do we get to live here in 2022? Why, why weren't, you know, like I was born in 96, right? Uh, go 90s. Uh, but why wasn't I born in 86? Why wasn't I born in 06, right? Why, why am I born in the U.S.? Why am I born in Indiana? Why do I live in Madison? right? Why am I part of a church that meets in a strip mall at the end of a creepy hallway? Why? I mean, like, there's all these things that we don't, that just contextually, you think about, like, how do all these things work out? What, what's, does it, it ever, like, just kind of mess with your brain a little bit? Like, the number of things that have happened to bring me to this point in my life, right? Why have I met the people I've met and interacted with, the people I've interacted with, and, and had the opportunities or privileges that I've had that other people haven't had? Why? What's, what, what, what is the purpose for all that? Well, the purpose is for each one of us that God has brought us into the world for such a time as this. God has a specific plan for each one of us. And if we, you know, and Mordecai gives this warning to Esther, if we refuse to walk in the plan that God has for us, God will still accomplish his will. Uh, the will of God will not be stopped by one disobedient person. It, it can't, the will of God cannot be stopped. But we can remove ourselves from what the, where the will of God is going. You know, I mean, you think about it. Um, I mean, who's been a, per, a force of greater opposition than Satan, right? Satan has been really the single greatest force of opposition to the will of God ever. He has not managed to stop the will of God. The will of God cannot be stopped, and it will not be stopped. But we are given the opportunity. We are brought into the world for such a time as this because God wants to do something with us. God wants to use us. He, most importantly, he wants us to know him. He wants us to know him and he, because he created us for that desire, that burden for relationship. But as part of that, he wants to equip us. He wants to enable us. He wants us to be part of what he's doing. And so we have been given this time. We've been given this place. We've been given the fellowship of this church. Right? We've been given just the fact that we get to live in this city, in this state, in this country, in this time, because the Lord wants to do something with that.
right? And so that should cause us to live life with a sense of awareness, with a sense of, of looking for the opportunity, right? If the Lord put me here for this time and place, and that means that every moment there's a part of this time and place that is somehow connected with God's will that I'm supposed to be stepping into. So all of a sudden now, everything you do is, is a mission, Everything you do is, is a mindset shift of, okay, now I'm, I'm going for what the Lord wants to do. This is not about what does Nate want right now? What's gonna make Nate happy? What's gonna make me feel satisfied or vindicated or whatever else? This is about what does God want to do in this moment? And that's where, that's where Mordecai goes to Esther with. And Esther uh, beautifully responds to it. She says, okay, tell you what, I'll go. Fast and pray for three days. All right, I, I need I need all of the prayer that every Jew in this city can give me. And then I'll go for it. And if I die, I die. Right? I'm gonna die either way at this point. And so, uh, so chapter five, she plans, she goes to the king. And lo and behold, you know, what are the odds? The king's in a good mood. He, he extends the scepter and, and Esther says, he says, what do you want? She says, I'd really like it if you and Haman came to dinner with me tonight. And so they have this banquet in chapter one. The king says, okay, what do you want? She says, I'd really like it if you guys came to dinner tomorrow night. Um, for whatever reason, either the timing wasn't right or she just had a, a prompting from the Lord or whatever, but she's, it just wasn't the right time. And so Haman goes out and uh, he sees Mordecai after this banquet and he's, he's, he's like, you know, he's on top of the world. He's got invited to a party with the king and the queen and him and nobody else. And he goes out and sees Mordecai and just reminds him all that bitterness, right? And bitter people can never truly be happy. They can never enjoy anything because as soon as they start to enjoy something, they're reminded of that one thing that ticks them off, right? So he just came out of this party because he's the rising star in the empire and there's that guy, Mordecai. And so he goes home and talks to his wife and his friends and he reminds him, he's like, guys, I am so awesome. I am so rich. I am so stinking cool, but my life is worthless because there's that dude, Mordecai, who just annoys me. And his wife like all supportive wives, says, babe, just build yourself a gallows that's 75 feet high and go ask the king if you can hang Mordecai on it, right? It's, it's so simple, honey. It's like, if he's bugging you, kill him. And so Haman says, I love you. You're brilliant. And they seem to have a good working relationship with each other. Um, so Haman goes to the king and he's getting ready to ask the king can I hang Mordecai? And in chapter six, we get just, it's one of these, you can't read it without just enjoying God's sense of humor. Because the king, and again, it's one of those, God's working behind the scenes, right? It doesn't say here, oh, the Lord then made this happen. But the Lord very definitely made this happen. The king couldn't sleep that night. You know, what are the odds? The king just, he was really restless. And so what are we gonna do? Well, let's go read the record book. Because like, what's more exciting than, you know, 1015, had a meeting with the Secretary of State. 10.30, had a meeting with the Secretary of Defense. 10.45, had a meeting with somebody else. 10, you know, 11 o'clock, right? Paid taxes. 11.15, fired the IRS director. Whatever you want to do. Like, records are fairly dull. But he's reading these records or having them read to him. And it says, somewhere in there, it says, and then, you know, Mordecai saved the king's life and found out this plot. And the king says, hey, wait a second. Did we ever do anything to reward that guy? And they checked the record, and uh, nope, nope, never did. He's like, man, we ought to make that right somehow. You know, if somebody saves your life, you ought to say thank you. And right at that moment, he says, hey, who, who's out 
Like, who's in the courtyard right now? I need some advice. They say, Haman's coming in. He goes, perfect. He's just the guy I wanted to see. Haman, let me ask you a question. Hypothetically, let's say there's a guy that the king really wanted to honor. What do you think we ought to do? And Haman, like, it's, it's, it's such a great story. Haman, in his mind, goes, the king wants to honor somebody. I just came from a banquet with the king and queen. Two and two makes four. I am sure the king wants to honor me. So, what should we do? Well, let me, let me consider. Um, so, what should we do? And then Haman said, chapter 6, verse 7, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Haman's sitting there thinking like, what would I most like to have happen to me? I know exactly what you should do for the man you want to honor. Here's what you should do. And the king says, Haman, you are a genius. Now, everything you say, you got it? Haman says, oh yeah, I got it, I got it. I, can you remember it? Absolutely, I've got it. Okay, good. Here's what I want you to do. Take everything you said and go do it for Mordecai. And, you, and, and, and remember, you don't tell this king no. Right? Haman cannot say no because his life would be at stake. So what does he do? He does it. He goes and gets the robe and he gets the horse and he, you know, he's got to go find Mordecai. And somehow, excuse me, sir, uh, I need you to put on this robe and get on the horse and uh, I'm going <clears> to <throat> take you on parade. And he's got to walk around the whole city for the afternoon or whatever saying, this is what happens when a king wants to honor somebody. This is what happens when the king wants to honor somebody. Yay. This is what happens when the king wants to honor somebody. The Lord, you know, in, in Proverbs chapter 16, uh, verse, I think it's verse 18. I looked it up this morning. Yeah, chapter 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Pride is a guaranteed way to be humiliated. And, and I love what I heard somebody say. You can never be humiliated if you are humble. It's impossible to humiliate a humble person, right? Haman could be humiliated dramatically because Haman is a man full of pride. If you're a humble person, somebody can do whatever they want to you and you say, yeah, that's okay. You know, I mean, God's really the one who's in charge of everything anyway. So, sure. So, Haman's got this whole thing. Chapter seven, they go to banquet number two. The king says, what do you want? Esther says, I'd really like you to save my life because I'm a marked woman and I'm dead if you don't do something about it. And the king says, excuse me? And she says, he says, who is doing this? And she says, Haman is doing this. I am a Jewish woman, and my people are Jewish, and Haman has plotted the destruction of the Jewish people. And you remember that 75-foot gallows that Haman's supportive wife told him to make? Well, a servant comes in while this is going on and says, by the way, king, did you know that Haman made a gallows to hang Mordecai on? And the king says, interesting, go hang Haman on it. And Haman, you know, it, it's, this, it's, just, it's the way pride and bitterness work, right? Haman's destroyed by that with which he sought to destroy someone else, right? Uh, Proverbs says, you know, 
guy who rolls a stone, it's going to roll back on him. He digs a pit, he's going to fall into it. When you try and trap somebody else for your own gain, almost always that trap will catch you. And that's, that's the way the Lord executes justice oftentimes. And so chapter 8, Mordecai gets promoted. Um, interestingly, Haman's goal was to wipe the Jewish people off the face of the earth. The result of his goal was that a Jewish man became the second most powerful man on the face of the earth. Because Haman gets promoted to second in command. And so then chapters 8 and 9 basically describes the deliverance of the Jewish people. Because the way the Persian Empire was set up, you couldn't just reverse a law. You couldn't undo a law. So this law is in place. And on this day, all the enemies of the Jewish people have full legal authority to kill every Jew they find. And so the king sends out a new law. And says, all right, guys, form up militia, start training, because on that day when they all can kill you, you have permission to kill them back. And, and I'm putting, and, and basically, and I'm betting on you guys, right? So any local leader, any mayor or governor or whatever, you've got like two laws from the king. One says you guys can kill group, you know, group A can kill group B, group B can kill group A. The king is on group B's side. What do you want to do? You want to be on group B's side, right? And so basically it describes... Um, the Jews' people rise up and they kill 75,000 of their enemies, people who are trying to attack them. They kill Haman's, they destroy Haman's family, and then they decide to turn it into a holiday. They commemorate it as a holiday to say, we need to remember forever this day as a day of deliverance from the Lord. And the Jewish people to this day will still celebrate it. And it's kind of morphed a little bit. It's kind of like their Halloween uh, for, for us today. Um, but they're still celebrating it today. Somewhere around, you know, whatever, 2,400 years later. They're still remembering that God delivered the Jewish people. And, uh, you know, and again, one of, these, one of these ironic things. It's called the Feast of Purim, or Purim. Because when Haman wanted to decide, Haman, as he, he comes up with this plan, let's destroy the Jewish people. Well, in a, in a superstitious culture, which Persia very much was, you've got to pick the right day. Like, is it a Tuesday thing or a Friday thing to wipe out the Jewish people, right? You gotta, you know, you gotta give some consideration to this if you're Haman, because you want to make sure that you get this all right. So, in chapter three, verse seven, it says, "In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, or that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month." So Haman cast basically rolls dice for eleven months to find the right day. He spends 11 months trying to calculate what's the best day to destroy the Jewish people. And the Lord says, that's interesting. I think that'd be the perfect day to destroy the Jewish people's enemies. Right? And so it's still called the Feast of Purim. What's Purim? Purim It's like the Persian word for a lot or, you know, like dice, basically. And so it's like the dice holiday. It's the day we celebrate one guy who's basically gambling on his bet to destroy the Jewish people. And the Lord said, I think, uh, if you don't mind, I'll just kind of, you know, flick the dice over a couple more numbers. And uh, I think, no, I think we'll take care of it from here, Haman. Thank you very much. So Esther is just, it's a, you know, think of all the different characters in the book of Esther, right? You've got Ahasuerus, who's really a loser. You've got Mordecai. You've got Esther. You've got Haman. You've got these characters who are trying to assassinate the king. You've got the Jews in the city who are praying and fasting for Esther. They're all part of the story that God's telling, right? And, and they're all there. They're all orchestrated together by the hand of God to pull this all off because the Lord wants to deliver his people here. And so where are we in this? 
right? Well, you know, God is in the business in the book of Esther of delivering people and, and redeeming circumstances and saving souls. It says in chapter 9 that a lot of the Persians wind up converting to Judaism because they can tell that the hand of the Lord is with the Jews. So that's what God's doing back then. Well, what's the Lord doing today? The Lord's still in the business of delivering people, redeeming circumstances, and saving souls, right? Where is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, right? This is what God is doing right here is exactly what Jesus Christ is doing today in our world. God is still in the business. This is what he does. And he has brought us here for such a time and place as this. And, you know, there's, we can all find ourselves in these different spots. Some of us come, you know, like the king. Some of us have a reputation for awful decisions. Some of us, you know, like, I mean, Esther is an orphan who really gets sucked into a system that probably destroys a lot of her dreams. And some of us have come from just incredibly hard backgrounds. Some of us have had life not be fair to us. Some of us uh, have just, you know, we go through stuff. Life is real and life is hard. And the Lord is still working through those things. The Lord is still working not just in spite of those things, but through them to, to do even more amazing things than we could fathom. The Lord is in the business of delivering people, of redeeming circumstances, and of saving souls. And he's inviting us into that same business. He's inviting us to be a part of that story that he's telling, where he's working behind the scenes, working to make things happen for his glory. And that is, that's really the book of Esther. It, it's, it's that invitation for us of God has brought us here for such a time and place as this. And Esther made that decision. I am going to follow in, what, in the opportunity that God has given me. For each of our lives, you know, our story hasn't been finished yet. We have that opportunity and we get to choose what are we going to do with it. Are we going to choose to take the opportunity the Lord has given us? Because if we don't, it's like Mordecai said, you know what? Deliverance will rise from some other place. The Lord will still do what he wants to do and you're not going to stop him. But, but he brought you here for a reason. He brought you into this world. He brought you into Madison. He brought you into this church tonight for a reason, right? So don't waste it. Don't waste it. Take the opportunity and watch God do something that is truly beyond anything you could fathom. That's what, that's what our opportunity is. That's what we're looking at through the book of Esther. So, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would go deep into our hearts. We pray that it wouldn't just uh, be words that we scam and, and then close the cover and go about our lives, but that it would penetrate that it would impact us. We thank you that the gospel is an active truth. It's something that we continue to grow into, something we continue to understand and comprehend and receive and accept. And I pray that you would help us to, uh, to walk in the opportunities you're giving us, to, to stand in those invitations. I pray you'd help us to uh, just be faithful people like Mordecai and Esther. We want to be people who just take whatever, whatever we're given and use it as an opportunity to glorify you. And so I pray that you'd have your way with us. God, be glorified in our midst. Uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your power and with your word. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.